Well, I just wanted you to know that the NBA playoffs have begun. The Grizzlies will be playing the Portland Trailblazers downtown tonight at the Forum. This is round number one. Uh, it is a best of seven series. It's the Western Conference semifinal, sorry, quarterfinal series. If they win this first best of seven game series, they'll have to win two more series in order to play the Atlanta Hawks for the NBA championship sometime before Christmas. Uh, in this game tonight, Coach Yeager will occasionally call a timeout. The stakes are high. The trailblazers are tough. The game could be close. Things may start to unravel. So Yeager calls a timeout. Timeout, Grizzlies. The players walk to the sidelines. The Grizz girls come out and do their thing. And towels and Gatorade get passed out uh, to give everybody a chance to cool off. Physically, emotionally, mentally. Everybody needs a timeout. You need a timeout. That's why we're here today. You need a break. A pastoral pause. We need to hear a word from God about our lives. We need to stop and think to see things from God's perspective. There are all kinds of reasons represented here this morning why we need that. Some of you are exhausted, overwhelmed, frustrated, disappointed. Others are heartbroken, grief-stricken. Some are distracted, confused, guilt-ridden, stuck, living in denial, stalled out, trapped, defeated. Some are bearing the weight of mature responsibility. Others are trying to shrug off the unbearable lightness of being disconnected from God's pure and perfect and pleasing will. Some are ready to throw in the towel, walk off the court, quit. Our text this morning is a pastoral pause. In the timeout, the coach says a couple of things to try to tune up the team, to get them back in the game. That's what I'm wanting to do this morning. Call a timeout. Take a pastoral pause. That's what this text that I'm getting ready to blow your mind with, that's what it is. It's a pastoral pause in the midst of some very intense, very real, very ordinary circumstances and situations. My text is from the book of Revelation. Now, I realize giving a single message from the book of Revelation may be a little bit like walking into the middle of a Harry Potter or Hunger Games movie when you have no idea what's happening, haven't read the books, haven't a clue. It's confusing. Uh, you may wonder, what's going on? Who are these people? Why are they saying all of this stuff? This is no place for anybody with literary ADD. That's your issue. Just help somebody keep you focused. There's symbolic language. It's an apocalyptic genre, which can get really deep really fast. But this book, 
uniquely is the basis for so much of our Christian worship. It gives us God's perspective on life. It helps us look at our present circumstances in light of the future, in light of God. I can't answer all your questions about this book. I can't answer all my questions. Uh, You might want to listen to Randy Carson's series on Revelation 2 and 3, or you can come during this hour. They won't miss you in here to the fellowship hall and hear me teach the book of Revelation and try to ask and answer my questions. I said this text, and it is in the book, the text that I'm getting ready to show you is a timeout. It's a pastoral pause. That's what it's intended to do. Chapter six, we're going to read the end of chapter six, and then the second half of chapter seven. Chapter six is a series of thunderous, earth-shattering, terrifying events. The lion lamb of God is opening these seven seals, unleashing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not the guys that played for Notre Dame under Coach Rockney, but uh, guys on horses uh, at the beginning of chapter six. Uh, It's terrifying. It's disturbing. It's kind of like if you remember, do you remember Saving Private Ryan? Do you remember the movie? Do you remember, if you didn't see it, some of you probably weren't even born yet, 1998, I think it came out. Saving Private Ryan has this D-Day sequence where they're storming the beaches of D-Day. It's harrowing. It's terrifying. Bullets are zipping past your head. It's kind of hard to breathe when you're watching it. It's the kind of scene Braveheart has plenty also. Kathleen would kind of reach over and kind of like grab me. Uh, There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of noise. It's thunderous. It's confusing. It's chaos. It's, it's kind of like Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 7 is as if right in the middle of that D-Day scene, the projectionist stops the movie, the lights come up, and a World War II vet shuffles into the front of the theater and stands in front of the screen and says... To the audience, it's scary, isn't it? A lot of people died. There's a lot of blood. But we won that war. That's what this chapter is designed to do for those of us who desperately need a break for one reason or another. It's a timeout to remind us actually to give us a vision. It's the book of Revelation after all. To give us a vision of something really important and to answer a key question that gets asked at the end of chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you'll come back to this book. It's rich, it's captivating, it's confusing, it's fascinating. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 6, the end of the chapter, Five seals have been opened by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. Seals that sealed up a scroll with God's revelation about life and everything in it. Five of these seals have been broken or opened by the Lamb. All heaven has broken loose on earth. And we come to verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6 and read that when he, the Lamb 
Jesus Christ opened the sixth seal. John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is apocalyptic language. The very cosmos, the foundations of reality are being shaken. And those original readers in those seven churches in Asia in the first century, they understood. Life was hard and it was getting harder. Rome was increasingly putting more and more pressure onto this new Christian movement. Some of their own people had been imprisoned. One guy had been killed for his faith. And Jesus Christ is trying to help these people to understand that even though it's a tough game, even though the opposition is strong, even though you feel out of control and that things are unraveling, God was there and he was going to protect them and eternally they would be safe. In verse 16 or verse 15, we are going to read about a group of people and I want you to keep them in mind because there's a gigantic titanic contrast between the group of people at the end of chapter six and the question that they ask and the group of people that we're going to look at in just a minute in chapter 7. Verse 15, chapter 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones, Hannibal, Caesar, and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The rumble of panic, the sheer terror, the cosmic cataclysmic disturbance that is being poured out on the earth as God says, It's enough. I'm done. It's finished. I'm going to make everything right. That's the end of chapter 6. Here's the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7 has two astounding, compelling, deeply comforting images. There are two great crowds in Revelation chapter 7. The first crowd is numbered. 144,000, verse 4 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Remember in chapter 5, it was the lion of the tribe of Israel that conquered. And in my mind, I picture a vast army, a a whole army with 12 divisions of 12,000 each assembled, sealed, protected by God and, and all out in array 
there. They've been sealed with the seal of God. It it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis has one of the demons say in the screw tape letters. The demons are afraid. They're afraid of the church. Not the church as we see it here with all these wacky wing nuts and funny things that happen and all these people that are hard to get along with. But from the spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, from the perspective of the book of Revelation, this mighty throng of sons of Israel, the church, as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That's the first image of the protected people of God in Revelation chapter 7. And I can't answer all your questions or even mine, but it's the second image that receives the emphasis, and it's the second image that I want you to contemplate uh, with me this morning. Verse 9, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Images often come in pairs in the book of Revelation, and they play off of each other. And this second image says something that the first image didn't say. The first image of these sealed, protective servants of the sons of Israel representing God's people, beginning with Abraham and this nation, this 144,000. Now John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. The actual text says, a great multitude which to number no one was able. It's an innumerable throng from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Chapter 6 ends with these people cowering in caves, panic-stricken. Who can stand under the wrath of God? And the answer is here. This innumerable throng from all over the world, from all time, they're the ones that can stand. So the question that I hope is beginning to emerge in your mind is how? How can they stand? And am I going to stand with them? Let's go on. Uh, They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation or victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you use your imagination And picture that thunderous ocean sound of that mighty chorus all together ascribing victory and salvation, not to us, but to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you hear that mighty chorus exalting? God and his great work, global, transhistorical. And all the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. You have to go back to chapter 4 to read this mind-boggling manifestation of the sovereign majesty of God seated on a throne in the middle of the universe. There's a throne in the middle of the universe. And God is on that throne. They're standing around the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever been to the Super Bowl? Have you ever been to the final game of some championship series? What if the Grizzlies go all the way to the finals? What if the final best of seven series is right here at the Forum when they're playing the Hawks for the championship? And what if the Grizzlies win? And what if you're there? What if you're there right on the court, right beside the team, or in your favorite skybox with, you know, complimentary beverages and foods of all kind? What if they win? The horns are going to go off, the confetti's coming down, the balloons. It's just going to go wild. That's in my mind as I read this image of heaven and all of those people who are there. This, this completely exuberant, unreserved. It's kind of like you guys when we worship here on Sunday morning. Or, well, maybe not. But... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an exuberant multitude. I know we're white. It's hard to be demonstrative when we worship. Uh, okay, the second half of this vision is an interview. And in apocalyptic literature, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, a lot of times some heavenly representative will come and communicate with an earth, a, a, a normal person. Like an angel would come and talk to Daniel very common in apocalyptic literature and televised sports. Uh, people from the sidelines with microphones come over, the camera gets on them as they stick a microphone in a coach's face or a MVP player's face and say, you know, how do you think the game's going? What do you think? What are you going to do? And, and that's what's happening here in chapter 13. There's a sideline reporter, a heavenly being that comes to John. Read it as along with me as I read. One of the elders addressed me. So all of a sudden, John's right in the middle of that heavenly, exuberant, victorious scene. And, and so there's interaction there. Just like there's supposed to be interaction with you and God as you come into his word to hear his voice. And, and the questions that he asks, like a sideline reporter would ask, are designed to get our attention back, particularly those of us with ADD, and focus us on what we're supposed to notice in this text, two questions. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, not written, and I think you're getting ready to tell me because I have no clue. The heavenly messenger says to John, verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It gets eloquent and beautiful and poetic at the end of this chapter. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. Do you need a break this morning? Do we need to have a little time out? It's noisy, cut to commercial, lots of dancing out on the court, but, but just between the two of us here, I just want to tell you a couple of things to tune you up and send you back into the game. That's what we want to see this morning. First of all, this vision is a vision of an innumerable multitude. Do you remember when God took Abraham outside at night and he says, Abraham, look up at the sky. Can you number all those stars? Abraham, picture the beach. Can you number all those grains of sand? I, the Lord God Almighty, who have chosen you, am going to make out of your impotent loins and your past the age of childbearing wife, I'm going to build a nation, an elect nation out of you. In numbered multitude, God fulfills his promises. Praise him. His word will never fail. We hear it said every single week, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands, you know, forever. That's what this text is saying. That's the paradigm polish that is offered to us this morning to help us go back into our lives with an awareness that while we may not always be safe, God is always with us to help us so that we do not need to be afraid. There's an innumerable multitude here. Do you know why? Because of what one man did alone on a cross. And that work was so effective that at the end of your life and mine and at the end of time, there is going to be a vast multitude, the number of which no one is able to comprehend. And they're from every nation, not just this one. They're from every people group, not just people like us. Every tribe, every language. A lot of people just like you, who have borne crosses and experienced losses just like you. But all kinds of people who are completely different from you. All together singing praise and glory to God and the Lamb. It's an international multitude because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And friends, you can know that if you are a follower of this Lamb of God, if you have trusted Jesus Christ with your life and your eternal destiny, that you're never going to be alone. Never, ever going to be alone. God is always going to be with you. And at the end of your days here, you're going to be part of an innumerable international multitude. We don't do this life by ourselves. We do it with many others who are walking with us, ahead of us, and behind us on this often difficult and confusing path to glory. 
Do you see what this innumerable multitude is doing? Remember the end of chapter 6, panic, terrified. Who can stand under the wrath of God? Do you see that this multitude in verse 6 is standing? They're standing, not in some cave, but in the very presence of God before the throne of the sovereign, infinitely holy, almighty God and before the Lamb. And they are standing in the very presence of God because that lamb was pleased to leave that presence of God and be forsaken by that God on the cross. As you recall him calling out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that we would not be forsaken. So that we could stand, not in terror, not in panic, but in praise before the very face of God and the Lamb. Do you see what these people are wearing in verse 10? Uh, Sorry, uh, in verse 9, they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Everybody's got the team colors on. White robes, palm branches. You'll see those rally towels tonight. Uh, And if the Grizzlies were to win the championship, you'd see the big foam, we're number one. You'd see all this paraphernalia designed to say, we're victorious. And that's what those palm branches were. It was almost a revolutionary symbol that Judea was going to throw off Roman oppression. You can see coins from the first century that have these palm branches on them to remind them that a deliverer was going to come and set them free from that political oppression. And so here in this vision, we have these palm branches indicating we won, not because of us, but because of God and the Lamb. And you know that these white robes are able to be worn by this infinite multitude because the Lamb, the Savior, Jesus Christ, was stripped naked on the cross And we are victorious because he conquered our greatest enemy, sin, death, and hell, by dying in order that we might be now forever clothed in the perfect righteousness of God. And in a loud voice, they're ascribing victory to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, shouting with unreserved praise because God sacrificed his Son so that we could be part of that victory over sin and death and hell. Now, in that interview, in this pressing this image more deeply into our minds and heart, this sideline reporter asks this key question, who are these people and from where have they come? And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They're survivors And whether that was some period of intense persecution that those seven Asian churches were going to encounter because they were under Rome, under Titus, under Domitian, or whether that great tribulation is the kind of oppression and persecution that Korean and Somalian and Libyan Christians are experiencing today, or whether that is some period of time before God wraps it all up. What we're being shown here is that these people survived the worst that life could throw at them. And they, were, they prevailed. They were resilient because 
of what they're wearing. You watch the Academy Awards. I grew up in a family full of girls. They love watching the Academy Awards. They don't care so much about three hours into it, but the beginning is the part that they like, where everybody's getting out of limousines and they're all decked out with all these clothes and they walk down the red carpet and everybody's you know, talking to them. And the question that gets asked, as you will know, if uh, you too watch those is, who are you wearing? Do you see who these people are wearing? We're wearing Jesus. We're clothed in white robes that we've gotten from God. And we have washed them ironically, memorably, unforgettably. We've made them white in the blood of the lamb. A white robe dipped in, how would that? That's designed to help us understand that when Jesus was nailed to that cross and his blood was spilt, that that was an atoning sacrifice that enabled a holy God to look at you and me and, and forgive all of our sin and to wash us clean and pure so that our consciences can be sprinkled so that we can come humbly, yes, and boldly into the very presence of God with thanksgiving, without fear. Is that the salvation that you experience? Or are you on some kind of self-moral, sin-managing, self-salvation project where your performance is based on how you feel and how well you happen to be doing this day? Or is it solidly built on the solid rock of the salvation that God owns and gives to us through His Son, Jesus Christ? Those garments were made white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ was stained, took upon himself our sins so that we could be washed clean and forgiven. They're serving in the presence of God. Do you, do you see this in verse 15? They serve him day and night in his temple. We know there's no night. We know there's no temple. This is figurative language to, to get us to understand they're in the very presence of God all the time. And they're serving him with this ultimate sense of significance and importance, being able to be in relationship with the living God himself. They're serving in the presence of God because Christ left the presence of God to come and serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. Do you see that they are sheltered by God at the end of verse 15? He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That word shelter is used by John in chapter one of his gospel when we read that the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us, moved into our neighborhood, God, right in our community, God sheltering them with the glorious presence of himself. And do you see how that this is better than any courtside seat? Do you see how this is better than any skybox with complimentary food and beverages that, that those who are sheltered by the very presence of the creator of the universe, they're not hungry anymore. 
They're not thirsting anymore. There's no desire that's going unsatisfied. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. He has made us to drink from the river of pleasure through his son, Jesus Christ, whom having given us his son, how will he not also give us everything? Augustine said it so well. Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Sheltered by God because Christ tabernacled among us so that God could provide this eternal shelter. Do you see also that not only are they sheltered by God, but they're shepherded by the Lamb in verse 17? The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, eternally satisfied. We can become confused. We can get in a place where we don't know which way to turn. We don't know which way to go. We're not sure what to do next. But in this vision of where we're headed, shepherded every day, through, through every valley of every shadow of death, by the Lamb himself. And do you see finally that this vast, unnumbered, multitude, shouting, wearing team colors, shouting unreserved victory. Do you see how this grand vision narrows down, narrows down, narrows down to a single finger on a single cheek of one of the single people that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save? And do you see this beautiful message of consolation as God himself, who himself suffered in his son, who is a sympathetic high priest, who knows the depths of your pain and confusion and your exhaustion and the weight of responsibility or the weight of your sin far better than you ever will, takes his finger and wipes those cheer, tears from your cheek, every tear from their eyes. Do you know how he can do that? Instead of pouring out his wrath on you, because he poured out his wrath on his son, he turned his back on his son so that he could wipe every tear from your eyes. Here's the big idea. Here's what this passage, here's in this timeout, it's noisy, there's music, everybody's going up to get something else to drink and come back for the final seconds of the game. You're tired, you're outplayed, it's close, the stakes are high. Here's the one thing that I want you to know before you go back out there. We may not always be safe, but we do not need to be afraid. Only a suffering Savior can save us from our suffering. God has conquered our greatest enemies. Only God can guarantee our ultimate eternal safety. What do we do now? That's a beautiful vision. I hope it's beautiful to you. Go back to chapter 2 and 3. Read the words of Jesus Christ to people in churches, very ordinary people in very ordinary churches just like ours. Hey, pay attention. Hear what John heard. Hear what the Spirit is saying. Hear what Christ is saying to his church. 
Understand where you really are. Maybe you've left your first love. Maybe you're weak. Maybe you're morally or ethically or spiritually compromised. Maybe you're hanging in there, but you don't really care anymore. Hear the message to turn and come back and let this vision and this Savior reorient your own paradigm of reality. You remember in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, Lucy and Susan and Peter and Edmund and uh, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn that one of those girls first met? Well, he was in trouble, Mr. Tumnus, and the three kids, Lucy and Susan and Peter, were talking with beavers in, in their house. And the beavers were, and, and the kids were talking about trying to save Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Beaver knows there's no way they're going to be able to save Mr. Tumnus on their own. But Mr. Beaver says there's hope because Aslan is on the move. Well, Susan and Lucy and Peter, they don't know who Aslan is. So the beavers explain he's a lion. Susan says, is he quite safe? Mr. Beaver chimes in, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Time out. Just see what God has done to offer you eternal protection. A pastoral pause to gaze on this beautiful, hopefully compelling, hopefully encouraging picture of protection. You may not always be safe, but you will always be with God as you trust in his son who defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death and hell. Now go play your game. Play it for God. Play it joyfully. Play it fearlessly. Let's pray together. Father, we say with John, salvation belongs to you. You own it. You bought it. At the price of the precious blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As you look into the hearts and mind of these, your precious people, may you, through your Holy Spirit, convict or console and comfort them. May they know that they're protected forever, come what may. May they know that, as we heard earlier, You go with us through the fire, with us through the flood. Nothing can ever separate us from your love. We know what that cost you, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.